Hello and welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. And with me today we have Stefan Huddleston. If you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um sure. So I am a longtime tabletop role-playing game fan and enthusiast. Uh, I started in 1977 with D&D, as so many people do start with D&D. As a young kid, I was seven years old at the time. I walked into a bookstore and saw this box on the shelf. And I was like, what is this? And I picked up a copy, ran home, and I grabbed one friend from the neighborhood. And, you know, I was seven and I had read through, I read through this book and really didn't fully understand it at the time. But I got the, the enough of a gist and we both made characters and started playing. I, I acted as kind of the GM and kind of had my my character as like a GM PC. My buddy had a character and we we just started playing. And that's uh, when I discovered tabletop role playing games. And of course, that was 1977. Shortly thereafter, this little movie called Star Wars came out. And so being seven years old, uh, lightsabers and all sorts of other things ended up in my D&D game. I mean, it was just absurd and silly. And 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 from there, I uh, discovered eventually other players and other role-playing games. And I played scores and scores of role-playing games throughout the 80s. Of course, back then, my friend that I had grabbed and just kind of pulled into it, and, and he only, we only played, I only played with him very briefly, like that, that, that year I played with him. He was... For a very long time, the only other gamer who looked like me that I saw, there weren't where I played a lot of gamers who were black, pretty much overwhelmingly white at first. But then I was fortunate enough to fall in with a group that was pretty diverse, surprisingly diverse, where I had some players who were a couple who were uh, Filipino and one who was Korean and one who was Egyptian. And I was amazed and glad to have that experience. And so I continued to play for years. I met my my spouse who I've been with now for almost 30 years through a LARP, a LARPing uh, a club. So role-playing games have always been a huge part of my life. And so in the uh, 2000s, actually back in 2013, I uh, was laid off from the job that I had worked for years. I ended up going back to school, ended up getting my degree in history, continued on into my graduate studies. And in my graduate studies, I worked on several different things. The, the master's program that I was in, um, rather than as some master's programs will have you write one big um, thesis, uh, our, our master's program was different where they had us write three uh, different more uh, like mini theses because they wanted us to have kind of a broader a broader base rather than focusing on one thing. Um, and so as part of that, for the third of three that I wrote, um, and they all in some way related to uh, issues of marginalized populations, race and gender and, and other things like that. Uh, but for the third one, I, I um, got the idea. I said, you know, I've been playing role-playing games all my life. They're a huge part of my life, and I've never examined them academically. And role-playing games had only had, comparative to other subject areas, limited exploration in academia. It's only in the last, say, 10, 15 years that, uh, with a few exceptions before that, that, that role-playing games have really heavily been examined in the academic sphere. And so I'm like, I want to do that from a historical perspective. Most of the academic stuff that I could find at the time was coming from either um, sociologists or it was coming from other fields, other disciplines, and not a lot from history. Um, so I wanted to go back and examine that. So I decided that I was going to go back and, and say, I, I know what my experiences were as uh, a young Black child and a young uh, teen and all of that stuff growing up playing these games, but I wanted to look at it academically academically, and say, what kind of data can I find about what were the demographics of role-playing games? What were the experiences of, of those, you know, who was playing these games? What were the experiences of people who look like me? What were the experiences of women playing these games? And uh, so that's what I set out to do. And I wrote my third thesis on race and gender in, 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 role, in early tabletop role-playing games. So I looked at like the first 10 years uh, roughly of role-playing games from uh, when D&D appeared roughly till about 1984, 1985. And in, in order to do that, I looked at uh, a handful of, I, I picked a handful of the popular games of the time, Dungeons and Dragons, Empire of the Petal Throne, um, um, you know, uh, 
M-A-R Baker's uh, Tech ML. I looked at Traveler and a few other games. And then I took the, the first like about 10 years of Dragon Magazine. And I said, I want to go through every single issue. I want to go through all of these games and look at how do they handle race? And then um, the other thing that I looked at um, as a source was uh, a book called Shared Fantasy written by a sociologist called Gary Allen Fine. And it was, as far as I know, it was the first academic look at tabletop role-playing games um, right at the beginning um, in, in the late 1970s. As a sociologist, he joined some tabletop role-playing clubs and he started playing these games and he did the first ever ethnography of tabletop role-playing and wrote a book called Shared Fantasy. And I used that as a source to um, kind of examine what was happening with race and gender in those early years and how did how did it impact and and what did it look like in comparison to my experiences so yeah that was uh so that's kind of my tabletop journey and now i you know i do some sensitivity consulting i do and reading i do commentary on tabletop space and i continue to examine it from kind of historical and and in some ways a sociological perspective of like what tabletop role playing and how it how representation impacts particularly with marginalized communities based on race based on gender based on the lbgt community and so much more so those are my focuses so that's yeah that's kind of where i am as uh in relation to role-playing games. Got it. Yeah. Um, and right now you're uh, a university instructor? Yes. Yeah. So I teach uh, at the, as an adjunct, I, I teach some classes at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and then also at Pikes Peak State College here in Colorado Springs. I teach a range of mostly uh, history courses and humanities courses. I teach um, U.S. history, African-American history, African-American cinema history, some pop culture history, a range of other things. And then I'm hoping, hoping this summer to run my first section of a of a course on culture through tabletop role-playing games, where I want to examine the recent spate of role-playing games that have been coming out in the last few years, like Islands of Sina Una and Coyote and Crow and so many others that are written by people from various diverse cultures and, and things like um, thirsty, uh, thirsty Sword Lesbians and stuff like that that are written from people from marginalized communities about their cultures and, and about their communities rather than what we've seen for a very long time. Um, so many games that were written by people from outside of various cultures kind of writing, you know, you know, things like Oriental Adventures or something like that that were written by people who uh, rooted in those cultures. So hopefully that'll kick off this summer, if not then this fall. Yeah, I'm actually running this very soon uh, for the first time. So uh, I'm excited about Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Um, have you heard a book uh, uh, called uh, Monsters in America, Our Historical Obsession with the Hideous and the Haunting by W. Scott Poole? I have. I've, I've heard of it. I have not read it, but I've heard the, I've heard of it. It's uh, it's on my list of things. To... Yeah. So um, it's it's done by uh, it's done by uh, this person who basically um, so I, I think it's relevant uh, to share that this person's white, uh, a white man. But it was my first introduction into like this sort of topic uh, academically because I took a college mm -hmm. course taught by a uh, a queer Hispanic instructor uh, who nice. was it the class was basically like um, the intersection of like queerness and race and uh, disability um, and uh, horror in film. And so we studied everything from Dracula to like uh, Halloween to like, uh, you know, all these various uh, films where a lot of the horror stories or the frightening part of them was something to do with a marginalized individual or uh, trope or like some sort of bigotry associated with a different group, some outside group other than yeah. this normative, uh, you know, white uh, whoever was in that society at the time. Because, like, I remember very specifically for, like, Dracula and the way that we were looking at examining that was at the, the English perspective of uh, a Jewish... Uh, Eastern European coming to uh, England at the time and yeah. essentially inva invading um, and taking yeah. their women and taking their, you know, taking advantage of them. And there was a lot about the queerness of Dracula and a non-traditional relationship, having multiple partners and uh, all of that sort of like hedonism sort of played into these 
uh, fears that the cisnormative mm-hmm. person would have about an outsider to their society coming in and either taking over or like taking advantage of you or yeah. like being the boogeyman essentially. Oh yeah, Dracula is so much uh, like a lot of other horror of that kind of the, the late 19th and early 20th century, whether you're talking Dracula, whether you're talking about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, a lot of horror from that era is really, and, and particularly it, it's amplifying the fears of the writers of, of fear of the other, you know, yeah. um, in, in these tales. And absolutely. Yeah. There's a, well, you mentioned that book, there's a great uh, documentary, which I don't know if you've seen um, uh, it's uh, horror noir that uh, looks at the black experience in hor- in the horror genre in film in particular in the horror genre and and that's one of the great things i think um right now uh and and conversations that are being had um with things like that and and across academia is that so much of our uh, our past um, when we looked at things be it history or be it uh you know when we're looking at uh, you know cinema history or uh pop culture history and these stories and stuff like that so much of it has for a very long time been examined through a, you know, a cishet white male lens. And there's a lot, I think, to be gained and a lot to be understood to go back and examine these things through other lenses and through uh, particularly through marginalized lenses and ask some questions and kind of probe them uh, from different angles than has always been the standard. Uh, and and I think it, it opens up a lot of new horizons in uh in our um, study of of the past and of uh, of the stories that we tell, have you seen um, Blackula? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, um, I, I should have said before that when I went through my studies, I minored in film. Uh-huh. So okay. uh, when I examine things as a historian, I do a lot of it. Uh, I link a lot of it through film, things like that. This, as a matter of fact, this fall, one of the instructors, one of my uh, colleagues. Uh, is going to be on sabbatical and we we've worked together a lot and tend to think alike and uh, she's amazing and she uh, she said hey you know i'm going on sabbatical in the fall do you want to teach my uh vietnam war through film course and i'm like do i like yeah like uh history and film that's that's uh i love it so uh so yeah absolutely if you're talking old films and cinema pretty good chance i've seen it i um you know, I never, of course, before this course and when I was just and I took this course right when I was uh, coming out and like I was just newly like queer and stuff. So this was a wonderful course for me to take at that time. Um, I watched a lot of stuff and I experienced a lot of media through a very different lens uh, for myself and really explored my own gender through viewing things differently and like looking at things from a different yeah. perspective. And everything was definitely very interesting to sort of like watch, examine, comment about, think about. And even the stuff like that I never would have watched because I wasn't necessarily in into that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that I just became like a big horror GM after that because I watched all <laughs> these horror films and I like, you know, why does this work? How does this work? And then now like, um, you know, it's a part of how I built like such a, a big like uh professional career is like horror GMing and stuff. The intersection of like horror and identity is is very like intertwined and I find it to be really fascinating. I yeah. am interested in sort of examining all those films um that going back and looking at all of those different things. But for the most part yeah. I am mostly interested in like taking a look at people's perspective who are from those communities more than yeah, yeah. more than me like putting out a bunch of writing well and i think too uh you know although you know there's obviously forces in this world that want to try and deny it it is not as if uh you know queerness was absent from hollywood uh during you know the entirety of its existence right and yeah. so I think if you go back and you re-examine a lot of things through a different lens, you discover some amazing things in traditional Hollywood cinema that uh, people were trained and acculturated to kind of look at through kind of, again, that 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 heteronormative lens. And that is not at all um, what you see when you look at them through other lenses. Um, and there are a great many 
uh, wonderful classic films uh, that are filled with amazing uh, and just wonderful, glorious levels of queerness. Uh, when you really go back and you and you put that lens on, you're like, oh, wait a minute. I see what's going on here. There's hold on. There's this was not this this was not what 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 they were going for. You know, like what we're told. Yeah, it's 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 amazing when you really do it. Uh, and I was fortunate enough uh, when I was going through my studies and and, and particularly the film studies um, to have some very wonderful professors who were pointing these things out and going, hey, you know, you know, if you look at it through this lens and and you and you ask these questions you don't make those kind of like assumptions that are kind of hammered into us by quote unquote mainstream society you know because that that stuff was people try and make this thing that like queerness didn't exist in the past and we all know that's bs but people try and and, and make it out like that and it's just it's there in 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 um in books and in movies and things like that you just have to kind of set aside those uh uh, those notions that we've been uh, that have been hammered into us by you know society you know i actually just had this realization i was chatting with super dylan i was asking about like neverland and i made like kind of a cheeky question about like you know you know how did you know that you were not cisgender and why was it after you wrote the neverland setting for dnd 5e and they gave me like this really beautiful answer about like how peter pan is actually a trans allegory and i was just like weeping within five minutes of the podcast and i was like oh no I was, yeah i um, love i love uh i love neverland and super dylan great stuff yeah i think it's very interesting that um it's not so much about in in most of us within the community it's not about transforming something into having it be queer but like that queerness has been here the whole time um and that's, yeah. that's how i feel a lot about a lot of these opportunities that we have for producing media now and lifting our voices and things like that so for yeah absolutely for i think it i think it, i was just going to say i think it's wonderful to me i think because uh i i hear so many stories and i see so many things and when i was doing my my research i came across so many things of people uh particularly in the ttrpg community um using tabletop role-playing games uh, as part of their exploration of their identities and i Man, I love that stuff. I, I think that's uh, uh, just, it's wonderful. That's, I don't know how else I could put it. It's, I love it. Yeah, I, um, I actually was using role-playing games and writing to explore my gender from a very young age. I think it was like, I was like 11 or 12 or something like that. And I was not only writing to explore gender and like trying to write these feminine characters in order to explore that for myself, but also I was role-playing these characters online through like a text medium like MUDs, if you remember MUDs, multi-user dungeons. Oh yes, absolutely. Text, yeah, text role-playing games. Um, yeah. You know, and people would ask me, they'd either be confused about like my gender and be like, what gender are you kind of ambiguous? And I would, uh, you know, of course, like then people found out that I was uh, actually when I when I became an adult that I was actually very masculine. I was in the Marine Corps and like all this other stuff. And like, why do you play? Right. Why do you play femmes? And I was just like, uh, well, my excuse at the time. And it's funny, like how deeply you can like conceal these things from yourself and like normative society will like force you to repress a lot of stuff and like not confront stuff directly. I was role playing the entire time I was in the Marine Corps and prior to that really as a way of being somewhere where I could be accepted or I could be treated and greeted and um, loved for being a feminine person, even in the context of like all of these very dangerous and problematic uh, places like um, Dark Sun inspired locations, right? Um, right, and, right. Yeah. It, even in the context of like not knowing any better about some issues, but I think people are naturally drawn to explore both themselves and what they are trying to feel because we have so many societal pressures to act a certain yeah. way. I think, I think honestly, uh, you know, if, if people were to be more honest with themselves, I think that people, no matter where they end up on the spectrum, even if they uh, come out and, and, and say, you know, I'm cishet and straight or whatever the case may be, I think that a lot of people, more of the people than were willing to admit it, still use role-playing games to one degree or another to explore their orientation and their sexuality and things like that. Sometimes not in some healthy ways, unfortunately, um, you know, which was one of the things I wrote about in my, in my thesis in some very awful ways, but sometimes in some really good ways. Uh, and, and maybe they, they, they come to the conclusion, you know, in, in the end that, yeah, they say, I'm cishet and straight or whatever. 
I think they still make those explorations sometimes into other things through role-playing games. And, and then, you know, like the story that you just shared, I think when I was doing my research, I heard so many, uh, and I came across so many stories like that where people uh, were saying, yeah, like, you know, I explored my queerness or, you know, I explored my trans identity through role-playing games. And um, that was part of my process of kind of, you know, learning more about myself. And I think uh, that's, again, I, I, I just love it. You know, like, uh, you know, my, my spouse um, identifies as bi, my youngest identifies as trans non-binary, and they both, you know, talk about role-playing games and, and has was part of them going through those processes. So, yeah, you know, I think it's amazing stuff. Yeah, then it's probably no surprise to you that over half of my tables are not only like filled with queer people, but um, yeah, I had I had one straight table for a while, but they're not straight anymore. They have queer. They have <laughs> they had someone that's queer to join the table, but um, yeah, uh, yeah, I majority of my players are queer, and like even the straight people, I think a lot of them because of how I both present and the sort of community that I have built, it is such a safe place for people to explore. That I've had a lot yeah. of I've had a lot of individuals come out at my table and like sort of like they change their pronouns and like you know they are after playing this character for a short period of time like they discover that about themselves and like it is the community for them to do so yeah i think you know for for a long time you know when i was growing up and, and playing these games in my younger years it, it just was not at all safe for people to come out and and obviously there's still concerns and things like that today, definitely less so than it was, you know, in the 70s and 80s and, and into the 90s. Things were just vicious and ugly. I'm so thrilled to see. And I think if we're being, uh, I, you know, for me, if we're being honest, you know, it's a spectrum, you know, and and, and everybody tries to, to, to make these hard lines of like you're one end or you're the other. And, and really, there are all these degrees in between. And I think my thinking is... You know, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but my thinking is, is that that majority of people are are, are less on those ends than they might think. Um, and, and, and they're more somewhere towards the middle to one degree or another. Um, societal pressures kind of force them to declare one of those ends. I just believe really probably not the case with so many people. Um, totally OK if you don't want to talk about this, but what do you think? And have you looked into or thought about in regards to like pe people who go to prison and then they have these bisexual or these gay experiences for the first time because they're put in that situation and like that's their only outlet as far as like um, those types of yeah. relationships? You know, I, I think obviously, again, I think there's a spectrum there. And and I think uh, particularly in prison and then for people, you know, in my wild and 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 and, and life, I'm, I'm I'm one of those odd people that had so many careers in my lifetime and 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 various jobs that I've gone through. And so I spent uh, before the job that I was laid off from back in 2013, um, I spent 13 years in the fire protection industry. So we did uh, work on uh, the fire protection systems, fire sprinkler systems, fire alarm systems, extinguishers, special hazard systems and computer rooms and things like that. The company I worked for was at the time the largest uh, fire protection company in the world. And we had accounts with countless uh, businesses and government agencies. And so I contracted through that with multiple law enforcement agencies. Uh, I've been uh, down working on the fire systems at Supermax and in multiple prisons and, and, and things like that. Um, and so I spent a lot of time, oddly enough, in prison environments as a contractor working on on these systems and got to as part of that, you know, a lot of times they would kind of like assign you, you know, you'd have a guard there with you kind of keeping an eye on things. But a lot of times we worked alongside um, prison trustees and stuff like that in some of these institutions and some of the like uh, minimum and medium security installations. And uh, so I spent a lot of time working alongside a lot of people in prisons. Um Again, I think there's a lot of people who are in these environments, in prison environments, who uh, they come from on the, you know, before they came into the prison and when they come into the prison, they come into an environment where um, there are these preconceived notions about orientation and sexuality and these societal pressures. Um, and so I think that there are some of them who have, um, who are on somewhere. You know, like I said, closer to that middle on the spectrum yeah. um, who may be um, queer uh, to, to uh, on one part of the spectrum or another who 
haven't been able to openly admit it because of the where they grew up and who was around them and the pressures. And then prison, it kind of puts them in an environment um, that for some of them changes that. I think there are some people there who honestly were probably uh, somewhere on the spectrum, but wouldn't or couldn't admit it to themselves before they got there. And I think that's true of society in general. I think people are just, again, even now, as things are 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 getting better, uh, but we all know they're they're nowhere near there yet, and there's so much more left to do. It's hard, man. It's really really hard for some people. For some people, you know, obviously everybody's story is different, but it's so hard to to you know maybe you have you know fears of disappointing a family member, or you have whatever is going on in your life. You know, everybody's story is different, and it's so hard to come out. Um, and um, and there are just hangups that hold you back. Um, and I think that's true, like I said, in those environments and outside of those environments, I think everywhere. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, oddly enough, it's interesting, too. You know, I, I you know, in that time, I would I talk to some people um, and uh, it, you're in you're in, you know, for a lot of people in prison. It's it's really fascinating that Dungeons and Dragons, TTRPGs, Dungeons and Dragons in particular has become huge in prisons. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll have to find there's a really great article. I'll see if I can find it and link it to you. It's become huge in prisons because and prisoners have they can't have dice because dice are contraband uh, yeah. because it could be used for like gambling and stuff like that. Uh, but they've come up with an amazing array of creative ways to randomize yeah. and things like that. And then, you know, sometimes they have access to the books or sometimes they just because, again, ultimately, role playing games are pure imagination. So a lot of times they're just kind of winging it without the actual materials. But, you know, somebody knows enough about the rules yeah. to kind of work everybody through it. And it's become pretty big in prisons because, you know, what a, you know, I mean, here you are, you know, you can't go anywhere. And how are you going to spend your time? Same thing, I think, in those environments through role playing games and explorations of identity are happening in those things. And I'm really hoping someone in the in the academic sphere We'll do a deeper dive into uh, into that. Like, there's been some journalistic um, explorations, but I would love someone to do a deeper academic dive into uh, role playing games in prison environments, um, in particular, because yeah, it's it's become hugely popular um, over the last several years. Because, uh, like I said, it's just it's just you and your imagination, and it's like kind of a a perfect environment for it, you know. Um, unfortunately, for the people that are stuck there. Two things. Um... One, there's a lot of queerness in the military. And then two, there's a lot of role playing in the military. So <laughs> for in me, just like rear view mirror, of course, every, the, the joke had always been even like when um, I was considered to be straight. And, uh, you know, when I was in that environment, you know, the Marine Corps is both the most homophobic and the gayest place that you'll ever be. Um so it's like a very self-loathing, like very masculine, yet very queer environment. And people just don't understand that because they'll, you know, call someone the F word at the same time that they go and be queer with all of their buddies in their squad. And you're sharing like these fighting holes together and you're sharing these experiences. And in some cases, like, you know, they'll you know, jokingly, like, share a sleeping bag or something or, like, cuddle. And, like, honestly, there's so many queer times that I have personally had and, like, other uh, very masculine, you know, Marines have, have had, like, in the field and, like, away from society and away from the societal norms when you're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and really, it's just you and, like, your best friend. And you're just... It's so the, gay. The, um... Yeah. So uh, my uh, my dad is a Vietnam era uh, Marine. Uh, and, uh, 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 you know, I wouldn't tell him this because he'd probably have a heart attack. <laughs> but, you know, he's he's that, you know, old school era, very, you know, uh, old school Marine, you know, the stereotypical uh, jarhead, my dad. The fact is, yeah, if you know, if I if I think about it off the top of my head, as you mentioned it, yeah, I probably easily know. And, you know, here, in, I, you know, in Colorado Springs, where I'm at, we've got uh, five military bases. We've got Fort Carson Army Base. We've got NORAD, Peterson Air Force Base, the Air Force Academy and uh, Shriver Air Force Base uh, or now Space Force Base, I should say. The but, but you know, NORAD gets all all the branches of service um, up there. And then, of course, you know, through growing up, you know, with my dad, I think uh, I can honestly say that 
when you mentioned that, and then when I think about it off the top of my head, I said, yeah, you know what? I probably know more former Marines who came out as queer um, than any other service, um, any other branch <laughs> of service. So uh, that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Think about it. That's oh. the case. Yeah. A lot of it is, in my opinion, and this is this is just my personal like experience. A lot of it was for me that I was trying so hard to fit within the hyper masculine role that I just ended up overcompensating by a lot. I, I don't I don't think you're alone in that because that's I've heard that that before from from people who are in the Marine Corps. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think you're alone in that at all. I think it is. It's like trying to conform to these societal norms of masculinity and 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 you know, the Marine Corps, you know, has this image of being, you know, the 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 most hyper masculine of the hyper masculine, right? And yeah. so uh, I, I uh, role played yeah. a man for 13 years. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think I think that's the case for uh for for so many, right? And and yeah, and and, and I know um so many people across the spectrum who in in the role playing space, you know, one of my really good friends and colleagues that I worked with uh for years at at uh, one of the uh, one of the colleges I work at um and he's he's now run off and uh is currently uh applying to medical schools. He just finished all of his his stuff and he's applying to medical schools, but he uh you know, he would tell these stories about how, you know, he was in Afghanistan um, as a combat medic and, and he used to, you know, sit around and, and they, they, they had a, uh, he said they had a piece of uh, plywood that they would have all of their maps for their game and stuff on, you know, um, and they would, they would be playing Pathfinder in their downtime, you know, um, and so many people I know who are, uh, you know, like you said, it's huge in the military. And I think, uh, again, it's another environment where, you know, you have in the military a lot of moments where you have people who maybe are in areas where there's not a lot going on at that particular moment. You have these punctuated moments of maybe excitement, but like a lot of downtime that, that they have and they're, you know, you're sitting and waiting for something. I've even, you know, had again, you know, in through that job that I worked in fire protection, we uh, had contracts where uh, government contracts where we would have people that would go overseas to work on um, some of the bases and, you know, do like, you know, six month or year long contracts. And, you know, one of the guys came back, I remember coming back and he was like, yeah, he says, well, I got over there. And, you know, anyone who knows uh, the military and military contract, he's like, yeah, I got over there. And they were like, well, you know, you're supposed to be upgrading the, you know, he was in Kuwait and they were like, you're supposed to be upgrading the, the systems on the base, but we don't have the parts yet. So you're just going to have to hang out. So he hung out for six months waiting for the parts. And then the parts finally arrived. And they said, he said, oh, cool. Finally, I can get to work. And they're like, no, we've got to inventory all this before you can start. So you spent another month while they inventoried everything. And what did he do the whole time? Played role-playing games. He sat around and, and hung out and, and and played role-playing games because yeah. what else were they going to do, you know? I um My first time playing 5th edition was actually in the middle of 29 Palms, like in the middle of the desert. And we were just waiting for shit to happen. And yeah, I my first uh, character miniatures was like cigarette butts and rocks. And like, you know, we, we yeah. had like one, we had a DMG, a PHB, and that was it. And someone just running the game and uh, we were like drawing in the sand or whatever for like the maps. And uh, yeah, it was it was great. Did you did you train at Pendleton? Yeah, I well, I spent um, I spent seven years at Pendleton and then I was in mm -hmm. recruiting in Washington State for a while. And then then I went to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. And those were like, okay, the yeah. Yeah. major bases that I went to. And I went to a lot of other bases for training and stuff. But like, right, that's where I lived. Yeah, I was at Pendleton for seven years. Yeah. Yeah, I, I grew up in Southern California. So, you know, okay. Uh, yeah. What yeah. part? Uh, I was in um, the greater Los Angeles area, so we moved around a fair amount. So I grew up in born originally in South L.A., kind of, yeah. uh, uh, and then lived in Pico Rivera, Montebello, Alhambra, yeah. uh, West Covina, La Puente, like all over um, yeah. Southern California. As a matter of fact, I was uh, kind of heartbroken by the news of the shooting that happened in Monterey Park um, last night for the there was a, a mass shooting there. Yeah. Uh, that just came out uh, because I grew up like 10 blocks from from where uh, the shooting happened. And uh, like right, literally right up the street from there, there was a little movie theater that all 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 through the weekend, all day, Saturday and Sunday, uh, you could pay like 50 cents and sit there all day and they would show martial arts action movies. 
Oh. And so I spent many, many a um uh, a weekend just go there and pay my fifty cents, and I'd sit there with a fifty cent tub of popcorn and and sit yeah. there all day and watch uh uh martial arts cinemas. Then I'd walk down the street, and there were just like a host of like Vietnamese and Chinese, predominantly Vietnamese and Chinese uh, restaurants in that area. And I would just go down there and get something to eat, you know, and that was like, I spent many, many Saturdays doing that or Sundays doing that back then. And I was like, so I was like, so tragic. I was like, man, I remember like that neighborhood. Everything going on. I think we had, I think it was 150 proposed laws in the new year of anti-trans laws and um, with the ban of African-American studies in Florida. What do you think about the importance of teaching African-American studies? I think both um, African-American studies and um, all studies across uh, across, you know, and gender studies, all of it is absolutely critical right now. We're having these debates over and, and people like hear words like buzzwords like critical race theory. They don't most people don't even understand what critical race theory is, what it's about. There's all of this kind of like a uh, buzzy language that's like, oh, it's just there to make white people feel guilty about themselves and all of this other nonsense. There's just this wave of kind of like anti-intellectualism in, in America. And it's our fault it, it, as, as a nation. Um, we've kind of done this to ourselves, uh, or, or I should say at least those in power have done this to us, uh, to be more to the point. But we've kind of let it happen in, in this country. We've kind of like quietly allowed ourselves to believe that there's nothing that we can do about it. And uh, we need to be speaking up. We need to be challenging these things. I talk about it extensively in some of the courses I teach. There's a wonderful document. Well, it's not a wonder. It's an awful document, actually. But so there's a group called the Trilateral Commission. And they don't they don't hide themselves at all. But most people don't know they exist. Uh, they wrote after in the 1970s when they were formed, um, they put together a report. I um, mean, you can find it online. They don't hide it. It's called The Crisis of Democracy. And I really, really urge anyone who hasn't read it to read it. What they did was they wanted to examine what had happened in Western democracies in the 1960s to cause like the unrest of the of the 60s um, globally. And they wanted to examine what it was. And in a nutshell, uh, you know, the TLDR of the document, people in Western uh, liberal democracies were too educated and that uh, we wanted an educated populace, but not an overeducated populace. And that we, what we needed to do was dumb down the populace. And so very shortly thereafter, this report came out, the Trilateral Commission um, made up of very, uh, you know, Rockefeller was one of the key uh, in architects. Several other very wealthy people contributed and got a, 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 a peanut farmer from Georgia elected. And he was instrumental in creating uh, what we know today as the U.S. Department of Education as it stands um, in its current form. Um, and then very shortly thereafter in the 80s, we started to get um, standardized testing and a lot of uh, processes and things like that in schooling in America. And here we are today now um, in this kind of mode of, of, of education. And what we're seeing is this very um, frightening populace that has been educated, but not too educated. And we're seeing this anti-intellectual push back on things like um, gender studies, like African-American studies, like critical race theory and things like that, where we should be asking these questions. And like I was talking about before, re-examining our past through lenses, because we've been told a lot of things and some of those things are being challenged. So for instance, you know, um, one of the things that I kind of dive into a lot, these discussions that come up uh, have come up about things like uh, the Lord of the Rings and things like that and about um, whether or not POC existed in uh, medieval Europe. They did, not in great numbers, uh, but they did. As a matter of fact, my second of those three theses that I was talking about was written about two 13th century Arthurian tales about black African Arthurian knights. Um, And, you know, everybody knows Lancelot, everybody knows uh, Gawain and things like that. Very few people know Morian and Ferifus, the two knights in question. The these are used and and they're perpetuated. These ideas of like an all white, exclusively white uh, medieval Europe come from these conceptions of race that have were shaped by white male professors and, and their biases. And so recently, 
there have been a there's been a range of professors uh, led by a Dr. Geraldine King out of the University of Texas, Austin, and several others who have been questioning, like saying, hey, can we go back and reexamine our history and look at them with a different set of eyes? And they are asking questions about, well, we're told that modern racism, as we know it today, began here. And, and a lot of people place that uh, in, in the kind of post-Enlightenment period as, as science started to create these categorizations of modern race. This group of scholars is saying, maybe not. Maybe it's older than that. Let's go back and re-examine these things. All of that, I think, is is to say that we have these conceptions and these misconceptions. Part of that has flowed into the way people are educated or undereducated today, and it's contributing to a anti-intellectual backlash and a pushback against um, studies of like African-American studies, gender studies, and things like that. It's also part of this very frightening movement, like you mentioned, laws that are coming out, all of these anti-trans and you know bathroom bills and, and don't say gay and just awful, awful things that just turns my stomach and infuriates me. And and the, the whole thing, like you mentioned with DeSantis and African-American um, studies in Florida, it's a scary, scary time to see these things happening. Yeah, it's, it's something that I talk to uh, my partner about pretty frequently because she grew up in Georgia and she meets people all the time who just don't know a lot of the major events of the civil rights movement and didn't know yes. a lot of the atrocities that are just are not taught in school uh, yeah. be because it's going to make white people feel guilty. <laughs> right. Yeah. It makes and, it so easy to deny stuff, you know? Yeah. And a lot of that, unfortunately, so we, not unfortunately, I, I love living in Washington state, but we live in such <laughs> a, we live in such a white uh, area of, the United States. Mm -hmm. I think we're yeah. 75 or 70% white in Washington. And yeah. uh, we maybe it, and it's more than that. Um, in some areas, I grew up in a place called Tacoma. That was it's actually yeah. the I looked this up. This is the Tacoma is the blackest place in Washington State. <laughs> yeah. Um, my childhood was different than most Washingtonians childhood because I mm -hmm. like knew and experienced a lot more people of color. Uh, and, you know, had that childhood with them. And then for me to be now with somebody, to be partnered with somebody who is black and they will go their entire day without seeing another person of color uh, in their job or whatever it might be. Yeah. And some of the way that um, people treat her is just appalling and like the things that they say yeah. to her and like... Just as an example of like some of the really weird shit that old white guys tell her, like she's been called like chocolate goddess and stuff, just like as fucking oh, stranger, yes. just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? How do you yeah. leave with that? Right. My wife, she has a, a family, um, cousins and, and an uncle and stuff that all are uh, up in Renton, Washington. And Same so, area. yeah, I'm really I'm familiar with the I'm familiar with the, the region and, and the area. And, and yeah, it, it, it is. It's very much it's 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 a very interesting, uh, you know, I, I really point to uh, that. And then um, I have a really good friend, one of the guys that I played with for years in my high school years. And, and he's white, uh, but great, great friend and a lifelong friend and, you know, that I met through role playing and, and he's in uh, Portland, Oregon. And, and both of the, those uh, Portland, Oregon and Washington, they have this really weird kind of, there's this weird kind of um, white liberal kind of thing there. Oh, but, it's racist. But through that, it is, it is. It, it's so weirdly racist, but they don't think they're racist. Yeah. They think they're, they're, they're like really uh, 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 kind of like these, uh, paragons of, of white liberalism and, and, and like saving and helping the, the you know, the poor uh, um, white, white uh, people complex. of color. Yeah, white oh, absolutely. Complex. Yeah, 100%. And it, and it is it is it is uh, kind of an interest for those who have the opportunity to experience. It's just a strange thing to experience um, if you've ever been to those parts of the country, because it's like, yeah. wow, you people really, really think you're like, yeah, it's it's, you, it's pretty, pretty huge. Yeah, you, it's it's like the, I don't know, it, like I was very surprised, but then not surprised once I like started, because I used to live near Portland in Vancouver, Washington, across the river. So I went to Portland all the time mm -hmm. and my brother lived in Portland. So I was in Portland quite a bit. And my experience in Portland was once I learned that a majority 
or like a huge subsection of the KKK moved to Portland in order to like reestablish themselves. Um, I saw so much more. Once I just learned that fact, I was just like, this makes a lot of sense. Why this is the way that it is. Because if you go even a little bit outside Portland, if you go even a little bit outside Seattle, you'll run into these hyper conservative areas of both Washington and Oregon that are just filled with so much racism that it's just mind boggling because they will take their view of Seattle and the urban uh, centers in Portland and they will view that place as being this hyper liberal environment that they despise and along with it, the people of color within that uh, area. Oh, yeah. I absolutely get it. So where I live here in Colorado Springs, El Paso, El Paso County, um, where, where Colorado Springs is located, uh, was identified uh, multiple times in the late 90s and early 2000s as the reddest county in the nation. So even now, um, Colorado Springs itself, um, the city itself, when we vote, it tends to go, uh, if you look at the the, the map, uh, Colorado Springs comes out kind of like this very light shade of pink because the city votes overwhelmingly blue. The areas around the city and the rest of the county are the reddest red you can you can get. Um, and and so we have this very, very super ultra conservative like bastion that we're kind of surrounded by um, here. And as a matter of fact, I was just reading this you know, stomach churning horrid story about a, a a black rancher who's right here in El Paso County, um, who owns a thousand acre ranch here. Um, and he's got this concerted uh, effort of, uh, of white people trying to run him off his land. Um, he's been run off the road. He's been um, had all of these horrid things. And, you know, it's just a few miles a- away from me. And it's just chilling kind of this what we're seeing around this country and this kind of like divide of like, uh, you know, when you look at our map of, of elections, you have these very kind of blue urban centers dotted around the country. And we're just surrounded by a sea of red. And there's this kind of like frightening divide, this urban rural divide. And, I, you know, I've spent time in my former job. Um, of course, we traveled all over uh, the southern half of Colorado. Um, out of the Colorado Springs office. And, you know, I would go to some of these uh, things. And I, I remember going to one of the smaller towns here. I was with one of my coworkers and he was at the time, uh, he was in his 60s, older white gentleman that I worked with. Great guy. I remember us walking into a restaurant down there where we were we were working. You know, we finished working. We went to go get something to eat, walk into this restaurant. And it was like something out of an old Western. Everyone stopped. You could hear, a, you know, fork clinking on plates as everyone turned and looked at us um, standing there in the entryway of this little mom and pop style restaurant. Uh, This gentleman that I was working with, he's like looks and he looked down and he looked to me and he's like, what is happening? He's like, is my fly open? What is going on? And I'm all Dave, I'm black. And he's like, Oh, (laughs) so yeah, I get that kind of like weird. And it's, it's so strange. Like right now, the, the, the way um, that, that division is kind of coming to the forefront in our country through like some of these chilling bits of legislation that um, disgusting, disgusting things. And me looking back on especially the military, and I talked about this with Kimchi because uh, he also has mm-hmm. family that was in the military. And yeah, I never examined it until, of course, like towards the end of my career in the military. And me getting out now, looking back in hindsight, like the military is such a white supremacist organization, essentially, in the way that it's like, yeah. nope, and how yeah. it discriminates on people of color and like from everything from like the hairstyles that you're allowed to the way that you're allowed to act and everything like that, because yes. the doctrine and all of the uh, military code of uniform, the uniform code of military justice is written by college educated white people who were brought up in the system obviously to support white supremacy so me examining it now and i'm like looking at all this stuff as i'm learning about like what is the basis of like white supremacy and like why do we have the police problem that we have and why do we have these issues with people supporting these laws that don't make any sense in order to discriminate but it supports white supremacy and it's like Oh, okay. Uh, good to know that I was like, sometimes it's very difficult when yeah. you're in it, of course, to, to see these things. But of course, looking back to, and I'm no, I'm not uh, innocent in the behavior either. And sure, one sure. of the things 
that I have really tried to do better now is the pronunciation of people's names properly and respecting people's names. Because I remember even in the military, like I had this Mm -hmm. attitude, which was reinforced by the structure, but I made the choice to not respect people's names in in that if I, if someone had like a, uh, a Spanish way of saying their name, sometimes I would just wouldn't do it or I would like, or they had a a difficult name to say or something like that. Sometimes I just wouldn't do it. And yeah, that is like rooted in white supremacy. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I get it. I I think, I think, you know, and that's one of the things, you know, I I talk a lot about is that we have this, uh, you know, and, you know, I was growing up, I grew up in the seventies and eighties and man, we were brutal. We were brutal. Um, I said things back then uh, about people um, in the gay community and things like that, that I would punch myself in the face for today. Just awful, horrid things. You know, the hope is, is that we can turn things around and get enough people to learn and grow and things like that. You know, I, I like to say, you know, progress, not perfection. You know, it's it's all about uh, growth and learning and things like that. Um, you know, I, 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 I say so many times that uh, I'm kind of glad uh, that uh, uh, I didn't grow up. You know, when I grew up, there were not people, I didn't have to have the concern that every single person around me had the ability to record for all eternity, my stupidity. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Cause I did some things that were, that were horrid that I'm, I'm glad were not recorded because I'm, I'm happy to leave those parts of me and those, those things in my past. Um, and, 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 um, say, you know, I'm glad I've grown past them but I'm glad that I don't have to worry about them being dredged back up. A lot of young people do today uh, because I think we all have those moments. Hopefully um, at least those of us who are willing to change and grow, we all have those things in our past that we are not proud of. I think it's better uh, if we can um, learn from them, grow from them and then move on from them and not have to uh, revisit them. We've all been there. We've all had those things. Like you said that, that, you know, and yeah, the military, like I said, growing up with, uh, you know, my dad, like I said, as a, as a, you know, a Marine, you know, that's just that kind of mindset that kind of gets hammered into you. You know, if you can't pronounce somebody's name, then you give them some kind of a, a joke, you know, jokey quote unquote, kind of like private alphabet or whatever you're going to call them, or, uh, you're going to mispronounce their name or whatever. And you're right. That is so rooted in, in white supremacy and so much of our, our past is that people don't realize. And those are the things that people are afraid to explore because they're like, oh, like you said, it's going to make people feel uh, bad about themselves. And that's not the point. The point is to, to understand these things in our in our past and, and, and understand that, yes, our, our, our nation is rooted in in white supremacist and racist ideals. Uh, I have a couple of colleagues who have a YouTube channel, Revolution and Ideology. Um, Jared and Nick, they're uh, great colleagues, uh, former professors, now colleagues of mine. They do some wonderful explorations where they go back and they look at like the evolution of the first law enforcement and the first laws and things like that in our past. And one of them is a sociologist, one of them is a historian. So they look at it from both perspectives and they look at these things and they say, hey, why were the first law? What were the first laws and the first laws in in Jamestown? You go all the way back to early things and the first law enforcement was to track down fugitive slaves. And so and, and, you know, and they share these primary source documents. That's what this was all about. Um, And things that people don't we just don't learn and we don't teach because it's uncomfortable. But growth is uncomfortable. We need to face that and we need to 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 deal with that. And and it's not about, you know, it's not the goal here isn't to make people feel bad. The goal here isn't to make people feel awful. The goal is to understand what these things are, why they exist, and how we can work past them. But everybody is just terrified of like, you know, so many people on that side, they just don't want to hear it. And they want to put on their rose-colored glasses, only talk about the good things and, 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 and ignore the bad. And I think right now, with some of the legislations that are coming out, we're witnessing the danger of the true, real danger of that and the harm that it is doing. And it sickens me because when I hear the language that is being used against the uh, the LBGTQ community, the language, you know, I, I tell people that the, the the bigot playbook is really more of a of a leaflet because they're using the exact same language that was used to uh, challenge interracial marriage. They're using the exact same language that was used to support segregation. They're using the exact same playbook in the exact same language because 
that's all they've got. It's very limited. And you mentioned it before when you when you mentioned um, Dracula, right? The the language is 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 very standardized. They're coming for our women. You know, they're going to be assaulting women in restrooms and things like that. They want to challenge everything and turn everything. Whether you're talking about people who are queer or whether you're talking about black men, they want to turn it into uh, sexual predation, sexual deviancy to stoke fear and hatred. Not very creative, but sadly, um, with a segment of the population, highly effective. You know, it's important for me to say that I have been racist and I have been transphobic and I've been homophobic. And it's very easily, you know, it's very easy to internalize these things and, you know, and to represent these structures that we're raised in. But that doesn't have to be everybody's future that doesn't have to be who you are anymore. yes yeah no I, man i I'm, I'm right there with you i've i've been there i've i've se- said homophobic things sexist things uh, all across the board right there and, and you're right it is so easy you know i tell people one of the things i talk about you know when i um you know on the role-playing side of things is that for probably the first 13 14 years that i role-played i never played a character who looked like me Pretty much all of my characters were either they were either white um, or they were awful, awful characterizations of either uh, indigenous peoples or uh, or uh, or Asian or something along that line, uh, because that's what I saw portrayed um, culturally portrayed. You know, heroes were white heroes were uh, um, uh, that looked like John Wayne or sometimes Bruce Lee. But they weren't people that looked like me. And I totally yeah. internalized that for like the longest time playing role playing games. Yeah, it's so important that we have representation in our games and our media for that reason. Because I remember mm-hmm. seeing in like when I was going through my initial uh, journey and transformation being trans. And um, I remember seeing uh, Lou Anders' uh, source book, Thrones and Bones, and like there was a trans character in it. And that. Yeah. That meant so much to me at that time. I can only imagine like growing up um, as you did and not seeing any black characters in tabletop games, uh, except as racist characters that were the enemy. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, you know, one of the things I wrote about in my article and in my in my in my thesis was, you know, I went back uh, and I examined Dragon Magazine and that first 10 years of Dragon Magazine. And I said, you know, okay, how many times am I going to see black faces? When I saw black faces, they were either, you know, and I pulled some images that I shared, like one of them was this terrible, uh, you know, uh, caricature of, you know, it's a black uh, man and he's holding a spear and he's in leopard skin. It's this very stereotypical kind of African quote unquote hunter image. And then it was images where they were either the sidekick or subservient or they were the villain. And there were very, very exceedingly few exceptions to that in that first 10 years. I could count them on one hand in the first 10 years of Dragon uh, Magazine. And uh, the few exceptions that did exist were uh, Dragon Magazine had a section for uh, TSR's Marvel role-playing game. And they would put stats for um, heroes from Marvel Comics in there. And so you had, you know, uh, uh, Black Panther and uh, Falcon and and characters like that that appeared in that section. Uh, But if you look at the sections that dealt with um, all of the other uh, role-playing games that were kind of behind the curve of where comics had started to introduce, you know, Black characters in the 1960s and stuff and and, and into the 70s, if you looked at things that were tied to D&D or Space Master or those other games that existed at the time, uh, Black characters were nearly uh, absent. Um, and when they were present, they were uh, almost always um, the sidekick or subservient, like I said, you know, um, to one degree or another. And that was, you know, the representation that like so many grew up. And then uh, to finally have that realization, I think for me in the 90s, oh man, black people can be heroes, right? And 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 to see things, those representational moments. And and I, I tell this story all the time. I didn't it, I didn't realize it at the time, um, but when I look back on it now, I can analyze it. When I was 12 years old, I remember uh, this movie came out. It's a cheesy ass movie. It's one of the few movies that I think has a zero rating on on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> wow. It's called it's called it's called Megaforce. Um, it's a really cheesy, super 
uh, uh, just cheeseball 80s movie in 1982. As a kid, uh, me and my friends uh, loved it because it has these kind of like, it, it's supposed to be about this multinational uh, covert force that's, you know, fighting for good around the world and stuff like that. They had these motorcycles that had like rockets and machine guns on them. And we thought that was the coolest thing we'd ever seen as, you know, 12 year old kids. But uh, one of the things that came out of that movie that I, that I never, ever forget. And I always uh, uh, look back on this kind of with fondness is that uh, there's a character in there who is black. When you first encounter the character, he, he is uh, sitting there and, and uh, this kind of, he meets this very stuffy white British general and he's listening on his Walkman to music and the general says Gladys Knight and the Pips. And he says, no, Vivaldi. Um, and the, the, the white general is like, Oh, spring. And he's like, no winter. And then shortly thereafter, he makes a quote. Uh, the black character makes a quote from Shakespeare. And so as a 12 year old kid, obviously when we would play um, and most of my friends at that time were white, uh, when we would go out and we would play, we would, you know, of course, like kids do, you would mimic the movie you had just seen, right? You would play the characters in the movie. No shock who got to be the black character every single time, right? Who got to be Lando Calrissian if we were playing Star Wars? It was this guy, right? Yeah. In fact, it was when I got to be Lando Calrissian. I was Lando Calrissian. There wasn't any question, right? Like, right. Um, when I look back on it, it didn't dawn on me um, at the time. And there's another scene with this black character where uh, one of the characters in, is frustrated trying to solve a Rubik's cube and the black character kind of like waves his hand and says, toss it to me. Right. And they toss it to him and he solves it in seconds. Right. And that was the first time when I was a kid playing these games that I got to be the smart character. That was wow. the first time that I got to be the one who was quoting Shakespeare. Wow. I got to be the, the, the bright one. And that like, again, it didn't, I didn't like, it was, it was amazing. But now looking back on it, I'm like, representation right like yeah that had an impact like i was like i get to be the smart one this time you know yeah wow okay thank you so much for coming on stefan yeah absolutely uh thanks for having me anytime uh you want to talk and anybody who uh wants to track me down on twitter and you want to talk about role-playing games and race and marginalized communities and history of marginalized communities i'm always open for it yeah and i made it to the end of the podcast before crying (laughs) (laughs) it's a new record for me (laughs) Well, there, there you go. Well, uh, yeah, you know, representation matters, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Stefan. I'm going to hit the stop. Thank you. For, thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Dollars and Dragons podcast. If you'd like to support me and more importantly, my editor who does all of the heavy lifting here, then you can subscribe to patreon.com slash it's Friday. And that is going to go straight to my editor. Appreciate it. Thank you so much.